we've experienced a little bit of um, uh, a frustration with that belief. Like it doesn't quite fit anymore, right? And so we, we kind of look at it and we're like, uh, maybe there's a new way to interpret scripture. Maybe there's a different way to see this, who God is and how God operates. And so maybe that's been part of your journey as well. The reality is, what I'm just doing is laying out the playing field that we all wander, that we all feel a sense of untetheredness at times, that we all experience a sense of, of, is God there? Is this right? Does this matter? Is this worth it? And so before I get into some teaching, I actually just want to settle our hearts a bit, and I, I want to lead us a little bit into some reflection. And so what I want you to do is, again, close your eyes, and I want you to think back in your life. I'll give you some time here in space. And maybe you heard today and like everything, you, you are opening up the scripture and every Christian song and worship song and everything is just exciting to you and there's just like a, a celebration in your spirit. Um, and I'm so grateful for that. But maybe you're here and you are literally hanging by a thread in your faith. And I want you to think about those places in your life, all of us individually, where we've been confused, where we felt thirsty, disillusioned, frustrated, we haven't heard from God. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you're angry at the people that you thought were the most God-like, hurt you the most. God, we know that when we read the pages of Scripture, we see a multitude of broken heroes. In groups and communities that didn't live up to what they said they were supposed to be. And at the end of the day, all we're left with is Jesus. And God, we just want to hear from you today. Will you give us the courage and the grace to invite you into these places in our lives that are dusty and thirsty? Oh, we pray these things. Amen. We all will go through it. If you haven't hit that spot in your life and in your faith, and just, it's coming. Kenneth Archer said that, that we all go through something called the desert of skeptical criticism. 
You ever been in that place in your life where just, you're just critical and skeptical of some of the things that really meant a lot to you? In our day and age, there's a buzzword going around right now called deconstruction. It's this idea of taking apart. And there's healthy ways to do it, and there's not healthy ways to do it. And I'm not going to get into all that today. But basically what deconstruction is, it's, it's undoing, it's unconstructing anything that has been put together in our lives as far as a belief system. Now, it's typically a word that's been used in literature and in cooking, right? Like, like how can you deconstruct this pasta dish and, you know, figure out what the ingredients are, right? Um, but everybody here and everybody not here operates out of a worldview or a metaphysic, right? We operate out of a certain way of seeing the world. And theological deconstruction is about dismantling our accepted beliefs. And this happens to everybody. I don't care if you're a Christian. I don't care if you're, you know, grew up atheist or agnostic or whatever. Everybody goes through deconstruction. It's not something that's just tied to suburban, white, affluent Christians. It's everybody. We all come face to face with our belief structure, and then we have to unpack it. And many people think that when you make a profession of allegiance to Jesus, it's just smooth sailing for the rest. It's just like, nope, I believe it, and I'm just going to put my head down, put my blinders at the side, you know, and just look straight forward. But we all go through stages of faith. In fact, there's just a bunch of different work that's been done out there from psychologists to biblical scholars. And one psychologist, James Fowler, says that there's seven stages of faith. Uh, Eugene Peterson, one of my favorites, uh, said that there's five stages of faith, and he's like, he, he actually mapped them out on the first five books of the Old Testament. So Genesis, Exodus, you know, the, the whole thing. And, and basically, it's this journey to adulthood when it comes to faith. Uh, another writer, uh, favorite writer of mine, A.J. Uh, talks about construction, deconstruction, and reconstruction. And it doesn't matter what you think about when you think about the stages of faith. Always a moment in somewhere in your faith where you hit a wall. Where something doesn't start, it, you, it, it's not lining up. And that can be a really lonely and isolating place especially when there's trauma or abuse or frustration or anger involved in it. Because the process of forming beliefs takes a lifetime, and often a lifetime has a whole bunch of things involved, like pain, frustration, loss, breakthrough, celebration, all of it. And this is why Paul actually writes in the scriptures that faith is a gift from God. It's a gift and so there's two important things I want to share before we get into an actual passage, a beautiful story, familiar story. And these two important things I think are really important for us as we set about our journey. Because no matter where you are today in your faith, I want you to give yourself some grace at where you're at. Okay? 
And I think these two really important things I'm about to say, it sounds very hubristic that I'm going to tell you something very important, you know, but these are, I think, are really important to just set the table. It's impossible to receive the good news about Jesus and start kind of our preliminary beliefs about God from a perfect community. Okay? We will unquestionably, no matter where you heard about Jesus, whether that's here or 30 years ago at some church across the country, doesn't matter, you receive it in context. Meaning, communities are real people who are broken. They, have, they live in a broken reality along with us, and this is part of what it looks like to follow Jesus in a broken world, meaning it's kind of like a hospital. So when someone goes to the hospital, they are seeking healing. And healing hopefully happens, right? But any visit to a hospital puts a patient at risk of getting another illness, okay? These illnesses, they're contracted. So ironically, you go to get healing and then you pick up something else. And the category, this is a medical term. It's it's called iotrogenic diseases, meaning you pick them up in, in medical places, in places of healing. Now, this is kind of how sometimes the gospel works too. That while we might receive this life-changing healing from Jesus and a love for Scripture and maybe a commitment to mission and a heart for justice and all those things that we get, we pick up other iotrogenic beliefs and wounding and things that come along with that. And so I just want to just set the table with that. Like, there's no perfect community. And some of you are, like, frustrated because you grew up in a certain church, and then you look back and you go, oh, man, but they taught this and that. I'm like, yeah, that's part part of the messiness of this whole thing. But no matter what, the rejection of all belief is a poor solution to dealing with some of the messy stuff you picked up. Okay. The second thing I want to say is this. While everyone goes through shifts, everyone goes through kind of like a journey when it comes to their faith, here's my hunch. That contemporary version of Christianity, especially in the West, has kind of a theological framework for understanding what I like to call elevation experiences. Like you come in the door and everybody's happy. Everybody pretends to be. (laughs) Pretends to have it all going on, and and we celebrate like, woo, when a lot of us are feeling, A.J. Sabota writes this, Swoboda writes this, he says, we are great at serving people in their success, spiritual growth, and victory. But contemporary evangelicalism has less of a framework for valley experiences. We are elevation churches. We have communities where blessing, happiness, and joy are part and parcel of following Jesus, which can be great, 
but we can only remain part of those communities as long as that remains the trajectory of our lives. The minute we enter a valley, being around all the happy, clappy rejoicing can get really difficult. So, yeah. <laughs> so those are, I think, just two really important things for us to talk about. So first of all, we all wander. We all pick up other things. It's not a perfectly, uh, you know, uh, sterile way we heard the gospel. And if we're just really honest, uh, we're not good at walking through the valley together. And so the story of Nicodemus, I think, is really important for us. It's found in John's gospel, and it kind of illustrates this lifelong learning process. If you don't know the story, it's going to start off um, in chapter 3, um, and it's verse 1. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night. Now, we're going to stop there for a second. So the Pharisees, you kind of know the drill about who Pharisees are, but what you need to understand is Nicodemus grew up as a kid learning the Bible from the first moment he could. And he went through different iterations of schooling to the point that he became a Pharisee. Now, we walked through this before in the past, but I just wanted to get your head around the idea that Nicodemus most likely knew the Old Testament by memory. Like, think about that. <laughs> by memory. Not only did he know the Old Testament by memory, but he had all, he's heard all the different arguments, all the different Mishnah, the different, all the different, in a sense, commentaries on the Old Testament. He is, <laughs> he grew up in a, Christian homes, you know, I mean, he grew up in a Jewish home. I'm saying that just tongue in cheek. He's, all he's done is gone to church. All he's done is known the Jewish faith. And he's a Pharisee. He's got standing. He's not just a Pharisee. He's a Pharisee in a, in a, in a place that is like hopping religiously. And he sneaks sneaks away and he finds Jesus at night to ask him questions because things are not matching up. The teachings of Jesus and what he knows are, are, are not totally matching up, right? And he's cowering in fear. He's a religious leader. He, he visits Jesus at night. He's sidestepping his fellow Pharisees. My guess he's probably brought up a few things and they've squashed it and whatever. Um, and they'll probably condemn him for sneaking away to meet with Jesus. One scholar called him Nick at night, which I thought was creative, but I'm just So it says, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs you, do, uh, you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. So Nicodemus is bringing a laundry list of questions for Jesus. And as with 
as with Job, if you've read uh, the story of Job, Nicodemus's questions are, they never seem to hit their target with Jesus. Just as Nicodemus is offering a question, Jesus raises a whole new path of the conversation. Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. There's so much we can unpack here, but we are not going to. Um, You should not be surprised, he says, at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it has come from or where it is going. So, So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and you do not understand these things. Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know, and we testify to what we have seen. But but still, you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life. So he's using, in a sense, the framework of Nicodemus's life and understanding his worldview, his metaphysic, to see, to help him understand what he's missing. Um, he meets, Jesus meets him in a very dark, not just at night, but a very dark place spiritually. He is his soul is stirring with questions and frustrations. And the ultimate questions are actually not from Nicodemus. They're actually from Jesus. That Jesus is turning questions back to Nicodemus. And he goes on, for God so loved the world, this is the football verse, that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they have not believed in the name of God's one and only. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love the darkness instead of the light because their deeds were evil. Because evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what we have done has been done in the sight of God. Here's the great part about this story, is it doesn't end here. It actually, we pick up Nicodemus two more times. And what we see is the progression of Nicodemus's life, of his questions, of his journey, of his wandering. John chapter 7 Finally, the temple guards went back to the chief priests and the Pharisees who asked them, why didn't you bring him in? No one ever spoke the way this man does, the guards replied. You mean he has deceived you also, the Pharisees retorted. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees Pharisees believed in him? No, but this mob that knows nothing of the law there is a curse on them. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier at night, <laughs> Nick at night, Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus earlier and who was one of their own number, asked, 
Does our law condemn a man without first hearing him to find out what he has been doing? They replied, are you from Galilee too? Look into it and you will find that a prophet does not come out of Galilee. You can see where Nicodemus is here. He's still wrestling. He's still part of his little Pharisee tribe, but he's still wrestling. And he's not ready to just jump on this whole accusatory thing with the other group of Pharisees. He's actually pushing back. After Jesus' crucifixion, Nicodemus appears one more time. And this time he bears no questions with him. He's got no questions. Verse 38 of chapter 19. Later, Joseph of Arimathea, body of Jesus. Now Joseph was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly because he feared the Jewish leaders. Pilate's permission, he came and took the body away. He was accompanied by Nicodemus, the man who earlier had visited Jesus at night. Nicodemus brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds. Taking Jesus' body, the two of them wrapped it in the spices and strips of linen. This was in accordance with Jewish burial customs. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden was a, tomb, uh, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Now, you're probably thinking, so what? Jesus helped bury Jesus. Um, Nicodemus helped bury Jesus. Well, you think about this progression. First of all, it's at night. He's under the cloak of shadow. He doesn't want anybody else to know. Then he starts speaking up a bit during the daylight, right? And then at the end of the day, he's something, he does something really, really scandalous. He is a Pharisee. He is a person of massive Jewish influence who has chosen to defile himself with a dead body. By touching and wrapping a dead body, you are temple, unce- you're unceremonially clean for a period of eight days. And there's a lot of things ceremonially unclean. I'm already running out of words for the day. <laughs> and, you, and he cannot perform any pharisaical duties for a period of eight days. Plus, he has to do a whole bunch of things found in Leviticus to become clean. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a feeling something's happening in Nicodemus. Something legit. Something that is part of a journey that is, is long and confusing and pretty dusty. I think that the transformation between the two Nicodemuses is pretty breathtaking. And I think this gives us a little bit of hope for some of our journeys. Um, I think apprenticing Jesus takes this up and down journey around circles um, I think it takes us through hard, dry, difficult places. I, takes, I think it takes a wholesale bending of our minds and our bodies and our hearts to the person work of Jesus. And it's about stories forged around his. Nicodemus' story is kind of what I, th- I think of as a theological, theological journey. And it's a lifetime process 
that we all go through of refining and ironing out our beliefs about who God is. One of the questions I want to ask you just out loud and for you to mess with a little bit in your mind is, where have you been wrong about God? When was the last time you were wrong about God? Maybe God wasn't big enough. Maybe God was too narrow. Maybe God was too focused on your needs. I think even our thinking demands a sense of growth and healing and change. And none of us come fully equipped. Here's where you need to give yourself grace. None of us come fully equipped with a perfectly developed, nuanced, and articulated vision of God. None of us do. And you might be sitting there thinking, well, you're supposed to because you're the pastor. Nope. None of us do. And the process of forming right beliefs takes time, and it's messy, and it's often embarrassing. And it demands humility. And I've been wrong about God a lot. And it demands some passion and some perseverance and some intentionality. And I've come to realize then why I used to respond to someone who was walking away from their faith through doubt. And I used to respond with answers. Like, oh yeah? Did you think about this? Maybe not with that tone, but you know. You know what I realized? That most of those conversations were about my own anxiety. A lot of times when people sit down, you know, I'm really struggling. I don't know if I believe this anymore. I'm like, and and I would just get anxious. Like, it's up to me. I have to convince them. I have to tell them wonderful things and little phrases that are really special and meaningful and that will change their heart and their life. (laughs) What kind of a jerk am I? Right? It often ended up pushing people away. So how do you respond? Probably start by responding like Jesus would. Most of the time, a doubter meets Jesus and he doesn't get an answer, but Jesus' presence. And because a person who's walking through doubt, if you're walking through doubt or you're wandering or if you're frustrated or you're angry and you're alone, you're not looking for a logical answer or apologetics or you're just looking for someone to be with you in your foxhole. And I think a lot of times um, when you're sitting with someone and they're really struggling, most often we open our mouths too soon. And I think we need this, and this, I think we need to ask for spiritual consent before we say anything. Maybe it's just a series of questions. Maybe for some of you who are really struggling if God is real, or you just feel like you're in a dry season, or if you're unpacking your faith, you're pulling things apart and looking at them, maybe it's about practicing some of the practices of Jesus. Maybe for the first time. Maybe you're angry. Maybe you need healing. Maybe you've picked up an iatrogenic belief along the way. 
Maybe you need to find someone that you trust. You know, one of the, one of the beautiful interactions that we get in scriptures between Peter and Jesus, and it's a moment when the crowds begin to diminish a lot around Jesus. And Jesus asks Peter, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, to whom would I go? You alone have the words of eternal life. Now, if you know anything about Peter's story, he still kind of deserts Jesus. <laughs> He's saying something out loud. He's saying something with his mouth like, no, we're not going anywhere. You're, who else, where would we go? Well, he still ended up going. And he was still part of his journey. In fact, you pick up Peter later on in the book of Acts, he's still messed up in some of his beliefs. He's trying to figure out things and how the, how the Gentiles fit into this whole deal. And he's kind of a mess. He's just a dude. He's just on a journey. So three little quick things for you to maybe hold on to one or two of these. I don't know. If you're wondering, my encouragement for you is to look for Jesus among those who know him. And I don't mean those who go to church. There are some identifiers about people who know God. And you will know them by their love, their posture towards others, their non-anxious way, maybe the hard life moments they've gone through and they still have a genuine kind of love of Jesus and faith. Maybe you need to return where you last encountered Jesus. I don't know. Maybe that was um, in a certain community. Um, maybe that's in scripture. Maybe you need to pick up a different version of scripture so it doesn't I don't know. Maybe it's in music. Maybe it's in nature. Maybe you need to diligently pursue Jesus. And what Jesus says all the time is ask, seek, and knock. Maybe your questions are what's important right now. And for those of you not in this place, great. Good for you. Um, we celebrate that. But can you listen? Like genuinely listen? Can you be present with people? Can you do that without anxiety? Can you ask spiritual consent before you start saying anything? Or handing books to people? Or verses? Because my hope is, is that we just have a better, honest conversation about this journey we're on. And that we would be the kind of community that dusty travelers would find a home in. Not um, veneered, happy, pretend, but real dusty travelers. I'm going to pray. God, we are dusty travelers. And it's... I think back to this amazing religious ceremony that Jesus 
attended. And when the priest at the water gate filled a pitcher, beautiful ornate pitcher of water and poured it out on the altar, that you, Jesus, stood up in a crowd and said, come to me, all who are thirsty. God, many of us in this room are really thirsty. And we, we admit we have some pain and frustration and heartache when it comes to this journey we've been on in following you. And we are wrestling with ways that we've read scripture and things that we've believed and ways we've been treated. And all of that has been pretty raw. And I admit there's many in this room, God, that have probably are really close to chucking it. God, will you give us just a taste of your love and your grace just a sip of this living water. God, as we are dusty travelers together, would you give us the grace and the courage to reach out to each other, to just walk with each other? That's the kind of church we want to be. That's our prayer this morning. Amen.